Welcome to the Negotiation and Conflict Management podcast series. I'm glad I know that now. This series is brought to you by the NAC team. NAC, N-A-C, stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management and all related topics. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. We hope you enjoy this episode. I am Michael Gross, your podcast host for today. Welcome. Our podcast guests are Mina Andipan from the University of Toronto, Estelle Archibald from Case Western Reserve University, Deborah Kidder from the University of Hartford, Tyler Okimoto from the University of Queensland, Gregory Paul from Kansas State University. Today's guest and podcast is from a panel symposium sponsored by the Conflict Management Division and the Gender and Diversity and Organization Division of the Academy of Management. The symposium took place at the 81st annual meeting. Today's episode is one of a five-part series on restorative justice in the workplace. We thank our guests for participating in the panel symposium and joining us. Let's listen in on the symposium as it was recorded live at the conference. Will restorative justice for managing conflict become a core competency for organizations? And what implications does restorative justice have for addressing conflict and wrongdoing, including offensive behaviors, workplace bullying, aggressive management, employee misconduct, sexual harassment, discrimination and performance issues in a context of virtual hybrid workforce and connectivity in a context of social media? I know that's a lot, but we got five panelists to handle it. Let's start us off. Yes, that is a lot. Although I'm not the one who said that you should actually shorten that, but. Oh, it wasn't you. I'm not going to say who it wasn't you. Um, yes, because there's a lot going on there. You can't just treat all lump them in together and say that, you know, restorative justice, there's just one way to treat all those different um, areas. Um, going back, you know, as Greg was saying, vocabulary is actually, I think, a very important thing to address when you're talking about restorative justice. Um, so for instance, and again, my comments are, are coming directly from teaching the concepts in classes and through mediation, as opposed to the scholarship. So one of my goals when I'm teaching students is perspective taking. I mean, I think that that's a core goal that I teach in all of my classes. My, My underlying goal, if you were to ask my teaching philosophy, is to get business students to think of other people besides themselves. And in the context of restorative justice, helping uh, students understand and recognize that people can cause harm, that you know harm is real. Um, and when I say the vocabulary is important is because the word victim is a very loaded term. In fact, I, I don't avoid using victim when talking about um, conflict in the workplace uh, because there are clearly situations where there's a victim and offender, um, but I separate them. On the one hand, I talk about conflict spirals where somebody's caused a harm, whether intentional, unintentional, and then the person who was harmed 
gets very angry and then says, you know, they're evil. They, they hurt me. So I can, I can do something nasty to them. And then of course they become the villain. And the first person says, I didn't deserve that. And then you get this conflict spiral. And that's where I want the philosophy of restorative justice for them to step back and to start thinking in terms of how they contributed to the conflict, how they can heal the damage and repair it, take perspective taking, you know, admit responsibility for their actions versus the clear examples of where it's a victim and offender. It's not a conflict spiral. Something very awful happened to one person and the other person caused that harm and you need to do something to to, um, restore the victim. Um, So when you look through that long list, one of the things that I would separate out is clearly power issues. It's very different to do some kind of restorative justice process when you're looking at people who are at the same level in the organization versus that, you know, manager subordinate relationship, right? So you you need to approach it differently. You need to be able to equalize the power or, um, you know, it could backfire on you again, right? So will it become a core competency? I really hope so. Can it? Absolutely. I, I'm in total agreement with with Tyler saying that you know people can learn this it can be part of the culture a forgiveness culture a restorative justice culture heck that's my goal i'm trying to train all these managers and leaders to go out there and think that way so can it absolutely will it i hope all right thank you tyler what do you got for us yeah so First, echoing kind of Deb's view that really one size does not necessarily fit all, and uh, you know, and, and really good experienced facilitators can read the situation. I think we probably don't know enough in research and theory to be able to give very concrete guidance about when it works and when it doesn't work. But that's something for us to aspire to as researchers and theoreticians. The thing that I did want to um, kind of separate out within this question is. Uh, situations where, you know, Deb talked about power in terms of status hierarchy in the organization. I think it also becomes really complicated when you have power dynamics in terms of that victim and offender relationship being drawn along traditionally um, disadvantaged group lines. So I'm thinking things like discrimination, sexual harassment, um, Me Too sorts of issues that, that are really, you know, hot topic these days. When there is that kind of conflation between what's happening between victim and offender and these kind of traditional lines of disadvantage, I think it makes the problem that much more difficult to resolve. You know, in in any of these situations, the victim and offender are gonna have different views about um, what's happening and and, and who's to blame, um, you know, what went wrong. But, But in these sorts of situations that gets compounded because suddenly everybody in the organization, inside and outside, has a view on what's at stake here. So take an example of like a Me Too style harassing behavior, right? So the offender, as is often the case here, might view their actions as just a misunderstanding. The victim might view that same action as a betrayal of the trust and the relationship that they might have had with that particular individual. Yet if you ask other victim group members, so in this example, um, other women, other female employees in the organization, they see that as a, uh, a reflection of historical oppression and kind of long-standing divisions between genders within the organizational culture that need to be addressed. If you then ask uh, members of the offender group, so in this case, other male employees, 
they might actually see it as a bad apple. And every single one of those slightly different understandings of, of what's at stake in terms of the values requires a different type of response. And so, you know, the, the goal of restorative justice being to understand other perspectives, respect other perspectives, and really try to engage in helping to resolve everybody's concerns. When there is this conflation uh, between historical disadvantage and the conflict itself, it just creates that much more effective power, particularly among those that are outside of the victim and offender dyad. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that space to really understand how to use restorative justice effectively in these kind of highly charged sorts of contexts that you've got listed here on the slide, Michael. <laughs> All right, thank you. Uh, Greg, what do you got for us? Uh, so I want to tackle this first part about will restorative justice become a competency? Uh, much like Deb's response, my answer is I hope so. And much like Tyler answered earlier, I think if we break down restorative justice into its practices, uh, I think some of these are already taught. Perspective taking, empathic listening, storytelling, face-to-face -face meetings, effective uh, self-monitoring, uh, introspection. A lot of these things are practices that we would want managers and leaders and really people who aren't in either of those positions to be practicing anyway. So I think if we can uh, set the stage in training and development for helping people to develop those skills, that I think is one way to help the framework of restorative justice to take hold, right? For us to build some type of ripeness. Now, I think what's getting in the way is in part the way that we're socialized to work through conflict. Uh, and here's where I'm going to uh, tie in. Basically, why do we naturally go for retribution when we're harmed? Where does this retributive mindset comes from? Uh, and here's where I want to spotlight the practice of socialization, right? We can't separate what happens in the workplace from how people have been socialized all of these years before they get into that workplace. So if you've grown up with a sibling or if you've grown up in well, in anywhere, you've probably experienced that feeling of hurt or injustice. And we know, I have a younger sister, so I know she was like, well, wait, wait a second. What, why does he get to tell me what to do? And I'm thinking, well, because I'm older, right? It's, it's net naturally the way. Um, and so, you know, these these practices of socialization, uh, we talk about anticipatory socialization, all of those come into play when people respond to wrongdoing in the workplace, right? We're also socialized regarding the legal system, right? So we are trained and told how the law works and how the law is supposed to work. And if we tie this back to all the research on organizational legalization that was really vibrant in, I want to say, the 90s and early 2000s, Right. Those um, those frameworks, those vocabularies have informed the way that organizations run themselves. They exist or part of their operation is to avoid being sued. Right. And so they model all of these dispute management systems uh, off of the legal system. Well, if we're trying to get restorative justice to be incorporated as a framework but we're operating in a system that's inherently legalistic, we might see some parts be at odds. Uh, so I, I think part of this is also separating out 
when restorative justice practices would be helpful and when they would be counterproductive, right? Because in some situations, restorative justice practices are going to be counterproductive. If I'm dealing with a situation where uh, uh, someone has reported uh, to me that they're experiencing sexual harassment, I do not want to bring together that person with a person who has hurt them. That will cause more harm. Right. I need to go through the established organizational practices. If I'm dealing with instances where, let's say, two graduate students um, have said things that have hurt one another, that might be a situation that's more ripe. Right. Because you don't necessarily have to have law to have hurt or to have offenses. And so we want to be mindful of those values and beliefs that we bring into the workplace we want to be mindful of the practices that underlie restorative justice, and we want to be mindful of when restorative justice practices would be helpful and when they would be counterproductive. All right, thank you. Nina, what would you like to add? Thanks. So I think we've had very insightful comments, particularly related to the first part of the question. Um, so I'm going to focus my comments a little bit more on the latter part here, so looking at the context of virtual hybrid workforce and connectivity in the context of social media. So particularly in the last 18 months, I think we've had this enormous focus, right, on, or, you know, been forced into sort of this virtual hybrid workplace environment, which has brought, um, of course, a lot of different dimensions of the workplace into, into focus. And so I think that that really adds an additional dimension to the restorative justice, well, the justice piece altogether and restorative justice in particular, because a lot of times and moving forward too, a lot of these related people are working by distance. And sometimes it's not just for the context of the pandemic, but or a lot of organizations are saying, let's continue doing this for the next you know, three years or five years or indefinitely, and you can work from home. And I think that has enormous implications on workplace relationships. Um, not just with your manager, but with your subordinates and colleagues as well. So to some extent, I think this work, there's at least two you know, pieces here that come into play. One is that I think there's probably more um, space for misunderstandings, miscommunication, um, instances of injustices because of the form of communication that we're using, um, which sort of minimizes our understanding of what the other person is really trying to say, what are the underlying intentions, all that sort of um, this sort of emotional component as well. And people use different types of communications and their understanding of different communication can vary based on their own individual experience, right? Um, and some people are more comfortable with certain types of technology, other people less so. And so I think that affects the quality of the interactions we have and makes it more ripe for sort of these issues of misunderstanding as well that can lead to feelings of injustice. Um, and I think the second piece is so that I would say kind of from the front end, we're probably more likely to experience injustices. But on the back end, in terms of reconciliation and repair, I think they also can be harder to enact because it's very difficult to really understand, you know, what's the quality of the apology that I'm receiving? What's the intention behind it? Uh, what are sort of the emotional underpinnings of the, you know, communication I'm receiving? Uh, because we don't see all of the pieces in terms of body language, in terms of sort of running into someone in the hall and, and, you know, and so what do they say to me then? And do they really care about our relationship or not, right? Because a lot of the communications we have now, they're not informal. They're all, you know, they're widely formalized. And so we're meeting for a specific purpose. So we have a specific objective in mind when we're uh, meeting at work. And so I think that that can in some ways um, make restoring relationships a little bit more difficult because we have more barriers, right? We're not 
seeing each other as frequently. We're not interacting with each other. We don't know each other's personalities as well, especially when you're you know, working in a new organization, for example, or meeting new people. So I do think that the context of the virtual hybrid workforce brings it really an entirely new dimension to, to issues of justice and uh, restoration in the workplace. All right, thank you. Estelle, what would you like to say? Yes, I'll just uh, briefly build upon a couple of points. I'll start with um, Nina's addressing of the virtual and hybrid workforce and connectivity in social media or virtual spaces. Um, my dissertation right now is a virtual ethnography, and uh, the core of it is studying conflict uh, in a leadership team. And um, as I'm combing through the data, of my uh, coaching and interviewing uh, transcripts, uh, what I feel like is emerging is that the virtual space can be very anesthetizing. And so what I mean by that, it either dampens or mutes out potential uh, affective or emotional experience that you might have as you are engaging uh, with others. And it can pop up in very interesting ways. So I can't tell you as someone who's participating in the life of an organization what it's like uh, to be holding a meeting uh, with one of my counterparts who's literally driving to work or driving to another place with the Zoom up on uh, the dashboard, not really looking at me until they come to a stop sign or a you know, a stoplight and then briefly engaging me with some eye contact and then carrying on. In this regard, there are many opportunities to not connect, whether that's through hiding or masking or just not being as present uh, as you could be. So I think to Mina's point, if there is something going wrong, someone may not pick it up because they're not really connected. They may not know, for example, that you've offended them or you've wronged them or you've harmed them. Uh, in that relational context. Furthermore, uh, to try to translate, especially if you are a newly onboarded employee or organizational member, to try to translate how you're feeling through that kind of medium. And again, that you don't really know the person as well, and they don't know you. Some of those physiological and somatic uh, opportunities you have to connect with others that give you information about the relationship you're not going to pick up on. Um, so it, it makes it, I guess, harder is not an adequate word, but it definitely makes it a different challenge. Uh, I can say that. The other thing that I just want to comment on briefly is this issue of core competency. And I'm not yet able to put my finger on why that bothers me, but it bothers me because part of what I want to say is that when we start reducing RJ, to measures of success based on behaviors and practices, I think we're in trouble. Um, I think Greg talked earlier about the broad multi-level perspectives we can have when we approach RJ and organizations. And I think the other part of that, you know, if we want to talk in levels, if you're looking at conflict from a micro level perspective, what's going on inside of the individual, whether you're yeah, I'm calling those affects or physiological responses or, you know, cognitions or social perceptions that you're developing based on the circumstance that you're in. 
what you start to realize is that there's this active and dynamic processual exchange of information across barriers as we move through our environments. I mean, and that is ever changing. Um, so we must meet the context where it is. And so it's very difficult to say, hey, that is the supreme core competency of RJ. And I would rather begin to develop some other kind of language such as orientation. That's not even adequate. You know, we talk about approaches, but there needs to kind of be this net of things that we consider, um, not just core competencies, but something that is more encompassing of the way in which we envision being, you know, how we assess how we are and how we become in environments. What we learned from our podcast guests across all parts of this five episode series is, will restorative justice become a core competency for organizations? in part three. As our series name states, I'm glad I know that now. What's more, I'm Michael Gross, and on behalf of all of us, we thank our guests, Nina Andriapan, Estelle Archibald, Deborah Kidder, Tyler Okamoto, and Gregory Paul. Thank you for being with us today. On behalf of our NAC team, Deborah Sai, Michael Gross, that's me, Jennifer Parlamas, Laura Reese, and Ming Hong Sai, we thank you for listening. For more information about this and every episode, you can check out the podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictmanagementteam.com. Negotiation and Conflict Management Team is one word. There you can find additional sources and links to materials cited in each episode. Please tell a friend about our podcast and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion about a topic you'll be glad to know about.